Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with our guest, Dr. Kevin Bateman, Scientific Associate Vice President at Merck. Kevin is a veteran of the bioanalytical industry. He's known for innovating on a level many of us never have the opportunity to do. He's always thinking outside the box, making bold moves to progress our industry forward. He brings unique insight, experience, and excellence to everything he does. He's the guy I look to when I wonder, what are we going to be doing in our labs in five or 10 years? I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. We're talking science as scientists do. So without further ado, here's another can't miss episode of Molecular Moments. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. I'm delighted to have you join me today. And can we start with you just giving a few highlights from your career? Yeah, great. Uh, great to be here, Chad. Really uh, appreciate the invitation uh, to come and have a conversation with you. Yeah, some of the highlights is uh, spending some time with you at various conferences. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, appreciate so, that. <laughs> reality, yeah, um, this is my 25th year at Merck, right? And so, yeah. and that's that's a long time at one company, and I'm pretty lucky to have survived those many years at, at, in the farm industry, right? Because there's been a lot of changes over the years. So lucky enough to start my career in Canada and then uh, relocate down here to the U.S. So I'm at the, the West Point site just outside of Philly. And uh, I don't know, it's been, it's been a, fun, a fun journey and the journey continues. So access to technology that never would have seen before, you know, when you think back 25 years and how it's constantly evolving. So for me, the, the highlights are the change, the constant change and the push to get better over the years. So, so Kevin, tell me about some of the different responsibilities that you've had at Merck uh, over that uh, 25 year career. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey starting. Obviously, when you first start, you're in the lab, right? You're in the mm -hmm. wet lab doing experiments at the bench. And as time goes by and, and you learn more and, and, and gain responsibilities. So in my first 13 years at Merck, it was in the lab um, focused on it was an analytical lab. So we did everything. We did uh, PK, we did MedID, we did biomarker work. And my job was to make sure we had the right capabilities to, to do that. I worked with chemistry, I worked with pharmacology, I worked with biology. And then when I moved down here to the US, I moved into, into the regulated space, working on clinical trials and worked on method development and running a methods development group for LCMS assays for small molecules and then moving in into peptides and, and proteins. And around that time, I said, okay, doing protein mass spectrometry is an area that Merck needs to expand. So I, I stepped out of that role and took on a role to build a, a protein mass spec group. Uh, just me and a postdoc to start and over the next several years built it up to like um, almost a dozen people. Around when was that? Because I'm, I'm curious trying to track against where... Yeah. You know, when the industry started making that transition saying, hey, we need to we need to be looking at large molecules with LCMS. Yeah, it was around 2012. Right. So okay. a, a decade ago, it started mm -hmm. um, that transition for Merck. And I got to say for Merck, you know, we're traditionally a small molecule pharma company. And so biologics was not a big part of our portfolio. Vaccines always was. But like monoclonal antibodies was not, you know, uh, as big at Merck as for other companies. So probably a little bit behind in terms of what other companies were doing using LCMS for proteins. But I think we've done a pretty good job of catching up and, and yeah. leading in some cases. So, yeah. And then 
thread all the way through that going back 20 years was just how do we collect data that we couldn't get in traditional approaches and so that and so i'm alluding to small volume sampling and and to me that's that started when i was in early discovery and we were doing um animal studies in mice and mice are really small and you can't get a lot of sample from them and so how do we how do we do studies with mice and use really small volumes so that's what we worked on and i started using dried blood spots in animal studies mm -hmm. um, way back, you know, 20 years ago. And then over the years, I kept pushing on that technology. And it was a thread throughout my career and taking it all the way to the clinic and then trying to advance the technology, you know, because cutting your finger and dripping blood on a piece of paper is not really a high performance analytical technique. And so looking at other options and volumetric sampling and devices, and we continue in that space and trying to push it into even other applications beyond traditional drug level monitoring. Yeah. So let me rewind you back to the beginning there with the DBS. I think a lot of people would actually say that the the paper you put out in maybe 2004 or something like that was a kind of a I'll call it a seminal DBS paper for bioanalysis, right? We know that dried blood spots have been around and in, in use for, for heel pricks, for, for neonatals, um, I think going back to early 70s, something like that. But what, as an innovator, to, to move your company into that line of thinking and then to publish that sort of seminal paper that's, um, that's going to be challenged, quite frankly, on the, on the utility of it, Tell me about that experience and how you as an individual drove that forward because it, yeah. it really did start something in our industry. So it's interesting how life experiences impact what you do. And so for me, I'll blame my daughter, right? So around that, that time when I first started at Merck, I had my my wife <laughs> had our first yeah. daughter. And this Glad was to hear in that Canada. was with your wife yeah. also, Kevin. She was involved, right? Yeah. Right. So, but in Canada, the public health nurse would come to your house, mm -hmm. and part of that visit was doing a heel prick and collecting a blood sample for testing for inborn errors of metabolism. It's just routine health monitoring, right? And this was when I was still doing my PhD before I started at Merck, right? And then when I joined Merck, I started learning about doing PK studies in animals, and again, back to the, the mice, and it was like back then, you had to use one mouse for every time point. And this was expensive, especially if you're using knockout mice. And so I remember in a project meeting, you know, th this was the, the big topic. And it's like, why can't we just use a drop of blood, right? And I'm like, hmm, why can't we just use a drop of blood? And I remembered the heel prick and it's like, okay, dried blood spots. And that sort of, you know, those events coming together, the need to improve how we do the analytical, the experience of seeing dry blood sample collected and saying, okay. Um, and I hired a summer intern and gave him the project to work on. And that's, you know, that, that was who, who was on the paper. Um, so an hmm. undergrad student and myself working on dried blood spots and just putting it out there, say, here's a technique that, you know, is going to help reduce uh, animal usage and, could be applied to just routine PK screening. It's interesting. It took a long time after that for it to be, you know, looked into, and it's had its ups and downs. But I think what we've seen through COVID and the pandemic is the need to decentralize clinical trials and and use remote clinical trials. So t techniques like 
at-home sample collection of blood samples is is becoming more and more mainstream. And to think it started yeah 20 years ago with a mouse PK study. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. And um, I recently had a conversation with Neil Spooner, of course, who you know well yeah. and, is, and has worked in that space and done a lot to advance that space. And, and uh, he also referenced uh, your your paper when when we talked to him, and uh, which was which was cool. And I said, hey, we're talking to Kevin uh, soon, so uh, so it's nice we make those connections. And one of the things, uh, and we'll talk a lot about other innovations and other things you've done uh, at at Merck um, with with new technology. But one of the things that came through that I was thinking about is when you work at Merck and you're innovating and you're doing new things and you you have the competitive space you have to work in and you also have that sort of non-competitive and you're you're a scientist, you want to share those results. How do you make that balance at Merck as a as a I'm gonna call you a serial innovator uh, in in what you've done. You want to share it all but you can't share it all, right? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. The question why why not just keep it a secret at Merck because it is an advantage for Merck, right? And exactly, and so, coming up with something new and innovative and then making it available for everyone else is potentially giving up a competitive advantage, right? right? Um, yeah, and we do have those discussions internally about, hey, you know, is this something that we should keep to ourselves? But I, I think my attitude and and sort of the attitude is. Um, well, if we thought it up, someone else could probably think it up too. And putting it out there makes it generally available versus someone else might want to patent that approach and, and block us from using it. So Merck's attitude is, you know, we don't want to compete on tools. We want to compete on molecules, right? And so um, yeah, put the tools out there and let the best molecule win from, you know, from a patient perspective, right? And so... I, that you know, mm-hmm. so I always yeah taking that attitude to heart. It's like, hey, if this is a new approach, it's more likely to be accepted if more people use it. Especially mm-hmm. if you're going to take a, a new approach all the way into clinical application and have data go to a regulatory agency with a new approach. You want many companies coming with that same type of data because mm-hmm. it's more likely more likely to be accepted. One of the things you do is you you um, are frequently asked to speak on new technology, and I've seen, gosh, I don't know, maybe a dozen a dozen talks from you where it's like, hey, Kevin reviews ten different technologies in dried blood spots or in, or in patient centric sampling, ten new uh, mass spec innovations, and and. Uh, Tell me first, sort of, how do you find time? I've often thought, geez, how does Kevin does he read? How does he read all these papers and and get all this information and pull this all together? Because what I do is I just look at Kevin's uh, publications and presentations and go, hey, look at all these cool things that are yeah. going on. So I, uh, I don't do any real work, that. Dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just play. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, well, okay. I've been lucky, you know, opportunity, but you got to be prepared. Um, you know, the prepared mind has, you know, so being able to jump on new opportunities when you see them, right, has sort of been what I've been able to do. Part of it, too, is I have no hobbies or outside life, right? And so, like, work has been my my hobby. My wife will back that up, right? And so, um, you know, I was lucky enough that she would stay home and, and raise the kids, and I was able to go into work. And I think, Part of it, too, is the culture of when I first joined Merck at Merck Frost. You know, I finished my Ph.D. When you do your mm-hmm. Ph.D., you're working all hours of the day. Um, and then when I joined Merck Frost, it was the same thing. 
everyone was there all hours of the day. So it's like, oh, that's how you work, right? And mm -hmm. there was the focus on, you know, how do we discover new drugs and get them onto market? Like that was the, the mindset and everyone, you know, focused on that mission. So anything you can do to improve that and add value was encouraged, right? Yeah. So that's over my career. It's like, how do we improve what we do? I'm, I'm not, never satisfied to accept the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so lucky enough that I've had management support to encourage me to constantly try to improve things. It not 100% goes perfectly well, and sometimes the status quo is good enough. And I'd rather try to push for something and be told it's not needed than not push at all, right? Yeah, excellent. So, so let's think back um, again, maybe 10, 10, 12 years, or I don't know, where, uh, you can go back as far as you want. Tell me a, a prediction you made or something you investigated, spent a significant amount of time on that was, uh, that, that was absolutely the, the wrong call and one that was absolutely the right call. Oh, man. Wrong calls get embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. So let, let's. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, so. I don't know that they're the wrong call. I think things that have taken a lot longer to come into routine use. We can go back to you know dried blood spots. It's it's been like 20 years, and we're still not routinely using mm -hmm. them in, yeah. in clinical development. And it's I think it's it's the learning along the way. It's like okay, mm -hmm. and for dried blood spots, hey, we can measure a drug out of a dried blood spot. You know that's great. Right. You know, but. The reality is, if you want to do it for PK, there's a lot of other information you need to know to do PK. And so, mm -hmm. when when did the person take the drug, right? And when was the sample collected? So, mm -hmm. while being able to measure the drug out of a dried blood spot sample is probably relatively routine, putting in the context of PK is not, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that when I first started on that. And so, that's why over the last, you know, five or more years, it's been trying to identify technologies that allow us to put that drug measurement in the context of PK, right? So fail to understand the context of the whole experiment. Mm -hmm. right, you know, right. you start doing things like, hey, I've delivered a solution for you. And it's like, well, actually, no, you haven't, right? Yeah, Neil, Neil and I talked about that a little bit uh, with regards to dried blood spots, because it, it's it felt like for a while it was the the tail wagging the dog, right? With the, the dog being the clinical engine and trying to move these studies forward. And here we are as bioanalytical scientists, yeah. exactly as you said, saying, "Hey, we've got a solution," and they're going, "We're not sure we have a problem." Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's it's finding the right use cases too, right? It's not a panacea. Mm -hmm. When does this make sense? And I think at Merck, you know, some of the successes we've had are in things like episodic disease states, like migraine. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so asking someone to sit in a clinical site and wait until you have a migraine um, before we take a blood sample is not really practical. But mm -hmm. sending someone home and saying, OK, when you have a migraine, take the medicine and then a little while later, you know, take a blood sample because then we, right. you know, that that makes sense. But just doing it because you can doesn't make sense. I've recently during COVID had uh, when you mentioned, you know, pricking your finger and dripping it on a card and whatnot. I, uh, during COVID, I was uh, working with a company and, and uh, we were doing some some blood spotting. And for the first time, I pricked my finger and dripped it on a card. And, and it actually was difficult. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to like, you know, I kind of figured it out, but it took some tries and things like that. And that's where I think evolving these technologies is, is so important past 
prick your finger and it's, and it's just going to drip. It, it doesn't really work that yeah. way. No. So, yeah. And that's why, yeah, we've focused and moved away from that and gone to more of a, a device based approach that, um, has yeah. it all integrated to mm-hmm. collect a robot. Yeah. So Kevin, as, as I mentioned, and, and as you mentioned, you, you've worked on so much more than, than dried blood spots and, and, uh, in the patient centric sampling space. I want to hear about some of the really cool innovations that are going on right now. What uh, I said in the intro that, Hey, Kevin's the guy you, you ask when you wonder what, what you're going to be doing in five or 10 years. So, Tell me about, I don't know, two, three, four, whatever, whatever the, the really cool things yeah. are that you're looking at, that you're excited about uh, for the future. Yeah, there's a few. Um, <laughs> so one is just speed related to analysis, right? And so last few years, we've invested in technology around really rapid mass spec analysis. So you can imagine, you know, and we've, I've looked at this many different techniques over the years, but most recently, um, partnering with SciX on their acoustic ejection mass spectrometry. Mm-hmm. So pretty much a second a sample into a mass spectrometer, you know, mm-hmm. so way faster than we could have done previously. Right. So what does that speed mean and how does that change our approach to experiments? And we're still in early days uh, of doing this and we've applied it, you know, in other parts of Merck for high throughput screening, where it makes sense, you know, you want to screen a library mm-hmm. and you have, right. maybe you're looking at um, an enzymatic reaction where you put in a substrate and get a product and perfect, you know, mass shift, perfect for, for mass spec, right? Um, but we've also looked at doing PK studies and what does it look like and can we do quantitation? And, and we've shown that. And, okay, speed, maybe not the driver there for running PK, but there's a lot of experiments that you you can do and a lot of experiments you don't have to do because there's no chromatography, right? So you don't have to worry about changes in chromatography over time. Mm-hmm. Um, the sample prep becomes much more straightforward, right? It, it just a balance between do you get the sensitivity that you need to meet the assay criteria, but it also opens up completely, I would not new, but old ways of doing um, quantitation that we've not thought about things like standard addition, where you divide your unknown sample up into multiple aliquots and and spike in known amount of drug into each of those and then run them. We don't do that because it takes a lot more analysis time to do that. And now with speed, we have the potential to think about new ways of doing quantitation and how do we leverage the data sets where we could analyze samples multiple times and really understand the variability associated with them. So instead of using arbitrary guidance related, you know, cutoffs on my accuracy and precision, we can actually truly measure the precision of our unknown samples and use that, which then goes into how we model the data too and putting error bounds on the, um, the model. So you have to think about completely new ways of of generating data and how that would impact our interpretation of those results. And really at the end of the day, it's a better understanding of our drugs that we're developing. And if we can have data sets that help that, then that's what we should, we should aim for. So, so. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about it because initially when I think about the, um, the technique, I think of, okay, we're not having internal standards and so we're losing a little bit of control. So we have to get the technique really precise, but with standard edition, you could run multiple samples faster than you run one traditionally with less prep. And then you build the precision into the actual instrument analysis side of it. Then you got to shift that 
that paradigm of thinking and and what what do you when when so let's say you you're ready um, you know the next step beyond um, high throughput screening is probably to look at early uh, early discovery studies to get some quantitation and then and then uh, you know non clinical and then moving slowly towards clinical and IND enabling studies. What's your approach to moving people's thinking and ultimately the FDA's thinking on uh, on really overhaul? If if that moved forward, you'd really have to overhaul. You know the four six uh, four six fifteen four six twenty thinking of acceptance criteria in studies. So how do you? Yeah, well, how does we one even start, start with there? data, right? Yeah, um, right. Because that you know data talks and BS walks, right? Is sort of my view of the world, right? And so yeah. Yeah. let's get the data. Let's let the data speak for itself, right? We're a science driven, you know, organization. We're a science driven industry, and so um, if the data is compelling, maybe that's an approach that is worth implementing. Hey, yeah. And so we yeah, have start early on, we can start with animal studies um, mm-hmm. and show the value. Right. And so mm-hmm. this is me just spouting off, right. I have yeah, to, yeah, you know, well, that's what you're value, here for. right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that's, I prefer the challenge, right. Hey, this is, we've not done this. Like, and I haven't thought through all of, you know, the variables associated with it. And then that's sort of my approach to things. I jump in both feet and um, hope, don't drown and find people that are mm-hmm. like-minded yet skeptical, right? Which mm-hmm. is always why I've enjoyed talking to you because you're like, okay, that's good. Like, but what about this? What about that? Right. And I love those conversations, right? I rather mm-hmm. have a good scientific debate with someone that is like, hmm, that's interesting, but you haven't thought it through because um, that's where I learn versus people that are like, okay, hmm, go ahead. I don't have anything like to say or no right like if you're going to push back on something i want to try you better have like um suggestions on how to prove it right so i think (laughs) i'm going to go on a sidebar for a second but like merck you know over the years have you know sends people on a lot of training courses and and things like that i only remember one and one thing that i learned was about communication and it's called the lcs model right Anytime okay. someone has a suggestion or, or is purporting out an idea, you should say one thing that you like about it, one concern you have about it, and one suggestion for improving it, right? And so if you can't do all those three, then you probably shouldn't be talking. Right? Hmm. Uh, all right. I like that. So, yeah. yeah. And so yeah, it's good. It's good to know how the Merck training budget is spent. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin learned one thing in yeah. 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> they gave up on sending me for training. <laughs> I suppose probably, <laughs> but, uh, but I, yeah, I, th- I think that kind of illustrates a point. Also, you're not, you're not concerned about saying what's on your mind. Right. And, and I think people recognize, um, you know, where you're serious and where you're making a point, but, still somewhat serious. And I, th- I think that's actually a communication skill that you have. So maybe you learned that in one of the courses and, and didn't realize it. But yeah, uh, we, all, but, we uh, all need a bit of prodding. Yeah, now, right. I, I feel like we've lost that that opportunity that we get in conferences face to face and sitting down. And, and quite frankly, it's the sitting at the bar after a long day discussing the interesting presentations where that you know, for people who aren't scientists that might be listening, that's what we do at those conferences, right? We we talk about more science when we have a, a, a beer yeah. or a We're glass kind of, of wine in hand. That way, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of, but uh, but yeah, but that's what that's what we love. So a good a good colleague of mine, I'll uh, I've been giving her a hard time, but she uh, she she recently said LCMS is really boring, Chad. 
said, I said, thank you very much. That's uh, my almost 30 year career is LCMS. So, uh, yeah. but, uh, well, but yeah, but it's, I, I it's know, all like, good. There are aspects of it that are pretty boring, but I think yeah. that, I think that's a testament to the success of the technique, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. if it's become so routine and accepted mm -hmm. that it's become boring, then we are successful. Right. But I think there's lots of other opportunity to make it exciting. Um, right. That, that still need to be worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. So what else? Tell me about another innovation that uh, that we can that we can discuss. Yeah. So one that's tied to high throughput mass spec uh -huh. is um, and then even even in other areas, too, is the rise in data science and and big data and using large data sets to drive better decisions. And I think of it from an analytical perspective of my, ideally, I, the goal is give me a structure and I'll tell you the method before I even inject a sample, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like, you think of all the methods that have been developed and validated and documented over the years, and we never leverage any of that data, which is kind of sad in itself. But yeah. imagine if we were able to capture that data and, then use a structure to say, okay, in my huge database of previous methods, what's as close, you know, to this molecule, you know, give me a suggested sample prep, a suggested chromatography method, and also, you know, predict the fragmentation and tell me what the method's going to be, right? We can't do that today, but there's no reason why we can't start building those, those models. Now, there's already software for predicting chromatography out there, but, you know, I think from a bioanalytical perspective, yeah, it's a, it's an untapped area that, you know, potentially we could leverage. You know, we're starting to look at and just mining the literature and using natural language processing to see if we can't pull out all the papers and literature and, and look at the standard things that we talk about, and, you know, accuracy and precision and um, that are written into papers because there's been so many published that meet FDA criteria. Mm -hmm. Can we mine those, build us a database that then it's not to replace the analyst, it's to provide them a toolbox that would accelerate the process of, of method development, right? So that's one um, related to that too, because I've, now I've ventured into ligand binding um, land as well, away from mass spectrometry mm -hmm. and, and yeah. collaborated um, with people in that group. Part of the early process of developing a ligand binding assay is, it, uh, especially for a therapeutic antibody, is, is to screen the um, type antibodies that you have. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so initially you might have 20 or 30 that you do a standard screening with that is, mm -hmm. you know, pretty routine these days, right. but you get down to maybe, you know, five or six that you want to follow up on and then you have to label them and do pairwise comparisons. And that, mm -hmm. that becomes a, a very big experiment. And so we've worked at automating that and using some data tools to explore a much bigger space of um, bigger experimental space. So assay formats, pairwise comparison, interference checking. I have a paper that um, is just going through internal clearance that sort of describes that approach. And we've been working with um, Purdue University and some of their data scientists to work on the, uh, the data processing and we're developing and making more data sets to allow us to, because the goal is to get a good pair of reagents to use and then take those mm -hmm. into a full method development where right. we use things like DOE. But 
if you don't have a good pair to start with, then your assay becomes much harder to develop and, and validate. So yeah, and it's expensive to pick multiple pairs. Yeah, and and it's time consuming to yeah. have to go back if you don't pick right the first time. And so yeah, I think these these are the kinds of tools that we're going to need to really uh, to really accelerate uh, what we can do. So that's uh, yeah. That's super cool. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm excited. Honestly, I'm excited for that paper. It's uh, it's you know it's funny you mentioned. Hey, I'm you know the mass spec guy. I'm now uh, looking at ligand binding things, and I think that's uh, I think that's <laughs> yeah. I think I'm the same. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, you know, it's an it's an evolution in our industry. I think um, I think there's crossover uh, everywhere where we used to have those kind of stricter lines of I'm a I'm a mass spec or I'm a binding assay or I'm a small molecule, I'm a large molecule person. So uh, it's fun fun to have us all working together, yeah. maybe a little more than we used to. Yeah. And then the thing that ties it all together that we have to consider too is automation and small volume dispensing technologies. And mm-hmm. so we've used some, but we've recently invested in more automation and dispensing technologies to try to miniaturize assays mm-hmm. um, just to really to enable exploring many more experimental parameters, right? Because mm-hmm. reagents are pre- precious, you know, if you, you don't want to waste them um, in using maybe traditional large volume approaches. So if you can miniaturize a lot of the experiments you do, then it allows you to do a lot more with the same amount of reagent and explore a, a, a bigger space. So, you know, we haven't, um, you know, 96 well plate standard format, but now, you know, looking at 384 well plate formats mm-hmm. and miniaturizing assay volumes, even for traditional assays like metabolic stability, mm-hmm. uh, PK, there's, you know, certain others in the industry have, have gone to 384 well plate, but mm-hmm. coupling 384 well plate with high content data capture, like on high res based systems and data mining and marrying all those together is sort of an area that, you know, for me is of interest and pushing forward is like, okay, combining all of those and not just keeping them as individual experiments, but thinking about how do we leverage all that data to, um, to make better decisions about not only the analytical aspect, but help drive programs along as well. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Another area I'm I'm curious for your um, opinion on is uh, where we're at with intact protein analysis by mass spec. And, and also, I'm curious, I just saw the news release that uh, Waters had acquired, I think I think the company's Mega Dalton, that was uh, Dave Clemmer and Martin Gerald's uh, company. And, and so that's even looking at intact viruses and, and capsids. And so what do you think is the future there uh, in, in that, that yeah. space, that really big molecule analysis? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to come down to what the use case is too, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah, we've done some work just like other uh, industry peers on doing PK of intact molecules in the preclinical space. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a challenge, right? Because yeah, the mo- molecules are big. They don't behave well from a chromatography perspective. Mm-hmm. The mass spec part of it is is complex because of the big ion envelope and, and resolving power. And but it's doable. Um, mm-hmm. And it gets down to what's the question you're trying to answer at the end of the day. Maybe early in discovery, you're trying to figure out maybe it, it's um, you're worried about clipping and you have like, whether it's maybe an ADC or you have um, a protein construct that has a peptide attached, you know, to an FC chain of an antibody. Right. You know, you're worried about, does it get chewed up? Does it stay intact? Then using intact type of analysis is going to really help understand 
what you're measuring because if you digest it down to the peptides, you don't know if something had changed in vivo that, that you're missing, right? The virus stuff is pretty cool. You know, Merck obviously works in, in the vaccine space and yeah. like, probably is not in my area, but talking to the people that work there, like viral capsid full or empty? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Simple question, right? Simple question, right? Complex yeah. um, analytical challenge. So things yeah. like, yeah, yeah. virus detection, mass spectrometry mm-hmm. um, is helping answer those types of questions. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, just again, expanding the types of applications that mass spectrometry can be a- applied to. So, you know, pushing mm-hmm. into higher molecular weight, intact molecules from from analysis perspective, but then applying native mass spectrometry to understand biologically relevant, you know, folding or unfolding and or binding of target molecules to, mm-hmm. to a protein. So all of these are, you know, helping us understand better the biology of what's going on. So um, coupling that with things like cryo-EM and combining the data sets to get a, you know better insights into the structure of, of those proteins or yeah, they're going to help because mm-hmm. that's the biggest um, challenge in pharma is understanding biology, right? At the end of the day, why do drugs fail? They fail mainly for lack of efficacy or for safety. And both of those are directly linked to our understanding of, of human biology, right? Mm-hmm. And so the better we can do it to help us understand human biology, the better and more successful we will be at bringing efficacious and safe treatments for patients. Yeah, I, I'm super. I'm just super excited by all this, Kevin. I, I really am. I think that's why we do it. That's why you said uh, work is your hobby and reading, you know, reading papers and things like that because we love it. That's why we stay late at conferences and go to the bar and talk science instead of uh, instead of baseball. Although sometimes it's baseball, sometimes other sports, hockey. Oh, hockey. Yeah. yeah, hockey with the with the Canadians, of course. But uh, but I was thinking actually just of. I, I always talk baseball with Brad Ackerman, of course, because uh, he's also a Tigers fan. But just to throw another industry guy out there that I, you know, see as a great innovator and probably somebody I should do a do a podcast yeah. with. But anyways, um, I wanted to ask you one of the things that you mentioned going through here um, was uh, working with uh, interns, with uh, with the the new st- scientists and and things like that. And I was thinking as we we're going through this conversation, we're sort of the first generation, you you and I and other people who started their career in the '90s, uh, kind of the mass spec applying uh, bioanalytical chemists, right? And now we have this new generation, and I see across different meetings promoting young scientists and. Um, and, and making sure that group comes along and has the same opportunities we did. So tell me what you're doing and to try and make that happen for people and leave, I guess I'll say leave a legacy, although I think you're going to be around for <laughs> quite a while, I hope, <laughs> unless you want to want a lottery ticket or something and looking to retire soon. But uh, I don't see that happen. Yeah. So you mean like how are we attracting new talent? In- yeah. Attracting new talent, getting them into bioanalysis, bringing them along so they have the same curiosity and, and desire to, to work long hours because they love bioanalysis, not because, not because the company's making them do it. I think one, one of the things that energizes me and, and that I've missed through the pandemic is, is actually going out to conferences and, and meeting and talking to students, you know, in the, in the poster sessions and mm-hmm. they're there, it might be their first conference and they're so super excited about that. And to me, that's like super energizing for me because sometimes we mm-hmm. forget about what we do is is actually you know a pretty 
solid mission in life, right? We're helping mm-hmm. advance human health. Um, and yeah. sometimes we're so close to it, we forget and, and take for granted what we do and, and we, we lose some of the excitement. So yeah, going and meeting students and, and talking to them, you know, luckily at Merck, we have um, pretty solid intern program where we, we, we hire interns. We also have um, a postdoc program as well. And so mm-hmm. that that's good. We just got a, a new postdoc approved. One of the guys that report to me, we're going to have a postdoc come in and work on the, the high throughput mass spec um, mm-hmm. project, right? So anyone out there listening that wants to do a postdoc, look me up. Because yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a good one. But we also have recruiting with, um, with universities and mm-hmm. we have a research center developed with, with Purdue University where okay. we, we do a lot of a lot of projects. Yeah, but then how do you, once they're here at Merck, how do we yeah. keep them energized mm-hmm. and excited? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's a constant challenge because, yeah, we're dinosaurs, right? And um, I have two daughters, 25 and, and 23. And, yep. and so talking to them and their attitude towards work and life and work life balance is pretty indicative of, you know, people that we hire here and it's it's it is a different attitude right it's like yeah um, it is yeah i you know work to live versus live to work right um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm i'm a live to work guy but a lot of people prefer a work-life balance and come in and and do really good work when they're here but then they have a life outside of work and i I completely respect that so that's Mm -hmm. that's you know that's just the balance of life and that's just not me but i i fully get and understand how like my daughter is like the clock hits five she's done she does a great job working she's an engineer mm-hmm. and does a great job before mm-hmm. that but her, yeah. her life outside of work is equally or more important to her than her work life right and so yeah, yeah. and we and I, I respect that as well right so uh, live to work versus uh, you know love to work right I mean I think it's kind of a I think those are those are tied together and whether it's generational or something else. I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, don't I don't really know, but, um, yeah. they probably have it figured out more than we do. Yeah. But I don't <laughs> but, know. For uh, me, I, like just walking, like walking down the hall and talking to the, um, scientists is, I find one way of getting them mm-hmm. energized and like, cause I don't know, I have crazy ideas all the time and I'm like, Hey, what if we did this? What do you think? Right. And, um, yeah. So that, it's kind of fun having those conversations with new scientists and, because they're not like, oh, that's just Bateman going off again. They, they right, don't know right, that yet. Yeah. They haven't learned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and you have to. You probably have to be careful that if you put an idea in their head and just say this or that, that that doesn't necessarily mean run in the lab and spend a week yeah. like yeah. doing it. Like we're no, just no, having the scientific. <laughs> oh, you want that? Okay. <laughs> Especially if they're in somebody else's yeah. team and can yeah. uh, do work to uh, help yeah. you out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they quickly army. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. What, Kevin? Uh, you mentioned hockey, right? You're Canadian. It's almost uh, you're almost born in your DNA. Uh, what other passions do you have outside of uh, outside of bioanalysis and, and mass spectrometry and innovation? I got a great dog. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. No, no. So yeah, what do I? So I guess you're asking what do I do outside yeah. of work, right? Yeah, what do you do outside of work, or, or yeah. maybe you don't. Yeah, no, there's a few things um, that I've you taken You told me up. once you're lazy, but... Yeah, I'm a pretty um, lazy line of coach, you know, <laughs> yeah, bonbon yeah, guy. Yeah. Um, no, so when the weather's better, I bike a lot, right? And so okay. my wife yeah. and I, we bike. We've done a lot of um, biking trips um, all over 
you know, not, not all over the world, but, you know, in Europe and, um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I was never a big biker growing up, but when I moved here, I had my old bike from Canada and I, you know, there's mm -hmm. good trails around here. So I started biking. Um, and I said, okay, if I put a thousand miles on this bike, I'll buy myself a new bike. And so I put a thousand miles on it. So I went and bought a better bike and then I biked on that for a while. And then we said, Oh, let's go, you know, a, a vacation and we'll do a bike trip. And we went to Portugal. Actually, it was like tied. There was an EBF meeting in Lisbon. All oh, right. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then right after that, we did a bike trip there and it was harder than I thought. Like, but it was, it was so satisfying. And so when I came back, I joined a bike club and, um, nice. I started biking more and, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, biking is my like out on the road and doing, you know, whatever, 30, 40, 50 miles is, a, is a nice mental break. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. It's a mental break, but also gives you a time to to think and to give you white space to think about whatever whatever you want, probably including science. So yeah, and then hiking with That's my dog, right? Mm -hmm. I got a yellow lab yeah. named Penny, and uh, nice. my phone. I have lots of pictures on my phone, as as you know, but most of them now are just pictures of my dog, right? One from out, <laughs> out hiking, and um, yeah, we go yeah. all over, and I find a dog a very calming influence in my life, yeah. right? Like. I could have a bad day. I come home and my dog still jumps on me and licks my face and is happy mm -hmm. to see me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, my wife is happy uh, to see me too sometimes, not always, but. But she doesn't lick your face. No. 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 <laughs> well, Kevin. Even when uh, I ask. Yeah. yeah. And any, any closing comments you want to share? Any science we missed or that we ought to at least look up or any, any, anything else you want to, you want to share with everyone before we, before we close this out. And I've, yeah. I've had a great time talking. Thank you. Yeah. No, one much. last um, area that is uh, eye mobility. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. 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 So, Let's talk about um, it. It's been around a long time and there's good advances. So, you know, so full disclosure, I sit on the scientific advisory board of, of mobile Ion, And so mm -hmm. they're making their okay. technology commercially available uh, it's pretty cool, like high-resolution eye mobility separations mm -hmm. yeah. on the front end of a QTOF at the moment. But you know, yeah. you can imagine it could be expanded to other. Um, yeah, and so again, making faster analysis with higher content is again the data stream, that data, right? And so, to me, the science of being able to generate more data, um, more relevant data, and then coupling it with data science is the future of our industry, right? Um, the regulated side of stuff is always going to be tough, but it's like, man, we do all that work to get plasma samples out of patients and we measure one thing, right? For, yeah. for PK and we, yeah. yeah, there's such lost opportunity. So the last one is again on, on the sampling and, and expanding beyond PK. We've done a lot of work mm -hmm. over the last couple of years on multi-omic analysis of right. Blood samples. We've done mm -hmm. proteomics, metabolomics, um, some lipidomics, whole exome sequencing, RNA seq, um, and we're in the process of standing, uh, putting these techniques into a translational oncology study. Uh, so it's going to be pretty exciting to get those samples collected and and, and see what we can learn about integrating large yeah. data sets in right. uh, collected remotely or um, in in a clinical study. So. I think the next few years of that are going to be pretty interesting. We don't know if it, what is going to come out of it. And part of that is overcoming 
a risk aversion of, well, if we don't know, we shouldn't do it um, attitude, right? right? But mm-hmm. we're not we're not going to improve if we if we don't take some initial steps to collecting data sets that we've never had before, right? Some t- some yeah yeah. You know, it's, some may not add any value. I, I will fully, you know, admit that. Others were going to gain insights that we could have never thought of before. Sometimes we don't like to do things unless we have a clear vision for what they're going to do. But sometimes we just have to explore and see where we land. I love that. Explore and see where we land. I think that's a perfect place to uh, to leave it, Kevin. Um, thanks so much for all the insights. It's um, fantastic. I, uh, I hope a lot of people uh, take the time to listen. Uh, certainly, uh, this was a, an episode for the scientists uh, among the crowd uh, because uh, we really dug deep into it, which was fantastic. I loved it. Thanks so much. Uh, Kevin, that's all uh, for this episode of Molecular Moments. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside of the podcast, uh, we have many webinars and other presentations available for your enjoyment and education. Visit bioagilitics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast. 